This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world from a Christian perspective. I'm Russell Moore, the Editor-in-Chief at Christianity Today, and with me is Nicole Martin, who is CT's Chief Impact Officer. Hello, Nicole. How are you? Hey, good. Good to see you. Mike Cosper is on vacation. Cue the angry Mark Driscoll voice screaming, who the heck do you think you are? I don't know, but he's gone and he will be back uh, next week. But I'm really excited to have with us today columnist for The Daily Beast, Matt Lewis, host of also the podcast, Matt Lewis and the News, who is with us today. Those of you who are listening rather than watching on YouTube don't have the opportunity to see that we have in Matt's background, Winston Churchill, and Audrey Hepburn. Is that who I see back there, Matt? Uh, it's Joan Didion. Joan Didion, Joan of course. Didion, How did yeah. I not see? Okay. <laughs> so we have Joan Didion, Winston Churchill, C.S. Lewis behind me, and Johnny Cash mugshot. So all of these will somehow thematically be uh, be related. I'm a fan of the entire, you know, catalog. <laughs> entire That's catalog. Great. Well, thanks for being with us. I really wanted Matt on the show today because Matt, you wrote a piece for the Daily Beast, your column about the biggest issue in the country this week, which is, of course, the arrest and arraignment of former President Donald Trump brought with it a packed out Manhattan level of streets also brought some really, as my friend Pete Weiner initially put it, gangsterish rhetoric from the former president about the judge and his wife and his daughter. Mm -hmm. And then Pete had to apologize because he learned that the mob actually has an ethical rule not to go after judges' families. Yeah. So he needed to apologize to gangsters and mobsters uh, <laughs> this week. So we had all of that going on in the background, and there are a lot of people confused as to what to think about this particular indictment of the probably three or four that we're going to see because the law is so complicated to explain. But, Matt, as you pointed out, Almost nobody is talking about the underlying issue, which really isn't in dispute, the fact that the former president paid $130,000 to a porn star, Stormy Daniels, also apparently to Playboy model Karen McDougal, and allegedly, according to the filing, perhaps to a doorman who had information about yet another situation. And what's surprising to me is that, as John Bolton put it on television this week, of all of the defenses happening of the former president, not one person is saying, that's not the Donald Trump I know. He wouldn't be <laughs> cheating on Melania after she's had a baby. Matt, you argue that sex scandals are passe. They are gone. Why? Well, look, I do think this says something about our culture. I think it says something about how Donald Trump has normalized things and we've become inured to it. But I think it says something about modernity as well. Like everybody else, every other political columnist in America was watching this arraignment 
looking at the unsealed indictment and trying to come up with a unique take, like something to say. And it occurred to me that the general consensus was that this was a nothing burger, that everybody who wanted to take down Donald Trump was hoping there was going to be some secret, explosive, dispositive smoking gun in the indictment that wasn't the stuff that we were all kind of expecting. And when it comes to the legality stuff, you know, it's kind of like a white collar crime thing. It's like, did he record things appropriately in the ledger? And everybody kind of, I think, greeted the arraignment with a big yawn. But it just occurred to me, like, this is a huge deal. I mean, imagine any other time in our history. Imagine if it came out, you know, 20 years ago that George W. Bush had had sex with a porn star and had paid her hush money. Like, number one, he'd have been out of office, probably divorced. It would have been the first line of his obituary. We would have never heard the end of it. It would have been the biggest scandal in the world. And with Donald Trump, that's sort of baked into the cake. It's like, oh, that's just Trumpy and Trump, you know? I mean, like, nothing to see here. We kind of already knew this about him. And, and you noted the other allegation that came out of the unsealed indictment where you know, allegedly there is a doorman who was paid some hush money to cover up uh, information about Donald Trump having another child out of wedlock. That would be scandalous. Could you imagine if it came out that even allegedly in an mm-hmm. indictment that Barack Obama had fathered a child out of wedlock? Mm-hmm. Fox News would still be talking <laughs> about that to this day. You would have Sean Hannity on his moral high horse saying, how, yeah. what has happened to this country? Yeah. What happened to our morals? Yeah. What happened yeah. to our values? And it's it's just an afterthought at this point. Maybe even Bill O'Reilly on his moral uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the way that you've kind of spelled this out, it is sad that you have to bring this out, that you have to dig through all of the other nonsensical things to find this truth. That in and of itself is sad. And no one has questioned how this affected his marriage. No one questions how this affects his children. It's just kind of like, eh, you know. And it does bring me back, uh, Russell, to what you said last week about this caution against being numb. Have we just become so numb to the ways of Donald Trump or so numb to the ways of politicians or so numb to the ways of, you know, certain people who think of themselves above the moral grounds or the requirements of regular citizenship that we just don't care? I mean, this can go across the board, but it does strike me that there's a callus here. We've built up a callus around the situation where we've either chosen, I'm not going to care, or we've said, it's so profound and regular that it's just normal. I was watching a couple of women who were being, or what was about four women at a Trump rally being interviewed yesterday who were all saying, well, no, it didn't happen because Mr. Trump is a germaphobe. And... (laughs) Uh, he he is able to find better looking women than uh, Stormy Daniels. And so it didn't happen. But if it did, it's fine, which is, wow. is kind of a summation of the moment that we're in. And I have a couple of reasons, I think, that we're here and have suspected these going really all the way back to Access Hollywood, which would have mm. been, you know, I, I said, I think in the summer of 2015, in the New York Times that Donald Trump has the attitude toward women of a Bronze Age warlord. And like Pete Weiner, I have to apologize to Bronze Age warlords when it comes to some of the things that we've seen since then. But I really believe that a great deal of what has happened is porn. And that is an entire culture that really has been 
numbed and shaped, which we see in more ways than just this. But it really is, there's very little that's able to shock right now. And then you add to it, years ago, I was talking about somebody in my ancestral denomination who had had an affair and was out of ministry. And I said something about him being out of ministry. And a mentor of mine at the time said, oh, he'll be back. Uh, he'll be back. He said, a white-collar Baptist having an adulterous affair will come back as an Episcopalian, and a blue-collar Baptist having an affair will come back as a Pentecostal, because in either kind of prosperity gospel Pentecostalism or in sort of the leftier uh, corners of the Episcopal Church, one can escape accountability from those things and just move on. Well, we're kind of living in a country that's all secular Episcopalians and secular Mm -hmm. prosperity gospel Pentecostals right now. And so with the secular Episcopalians, ah, who cares what your energy policy? With the secular Pentecostals, it's uh, what kind of a grift can you give to us and what kind of a show can you put on? Yeah. You You know what else really occurred to me too is kind of the death of shame. Yeah. I think Bill Clinton kind of started this in some ways. And I think that what Bill Clinton did contributed to getting us to Donald Trump, contributed to getting us to where we are today. But at least Bill Clinton, after deny, I I did not have sex, you know, after he did that whole thing, he ultimately had to be contrite. He had to apologize. Maybe that's because that was in its heart, or maybe that was just the smart political move. But Donald Trump isn't that way. Donald Mm -hmm. Trump is making a fake mugshot to glamorize something that used to be shameful he is glamorizing it. And it really strikes me that there's, you know, sort of different levels of society, right? So there's one level where most people in a very traditional society, a moral society, most people observe traditional values because they believe them and because there would be shame associated with not doing it in their community. Then there's the next level, which is where People do have affairs, you know, John F. Kennedy or or whatever, but you need to be ashamed of it because everyone knows that it's going to be scandalous and and the public will judge you. I think we've arrived now at the showboat phase where Donald Trump is celebrated. You noted the uh, Ambassador Bolton quote at the top of the show. Nobody says this is a lie. That couldn't be Donald Trump. I mean, I guess a couple of those women did say that Stormy Daniels wasn't attractive enough for Donald Trump. But I think I think most people who are supporting Donald Trump think, yes, he did this, but big deal. Everybody does bad things. Who cares? And so I do think that this is telling, not just about Donald Trump, but about us culturally, that not only are we at a point now where this behavior is acceptable, but I think it's celebrated to a certain extent. And I think the other element you add into that is the role of the rise of reality television. I mean, Donald Trump comes into his kind of public notoriety through this, you're fired. It's this no, I mean, no acting, what's no acting in quotes, of course, but this this kind of rise of reality television where anyone can be famous, which coincides with an overexposure of narcissism. So you add all of those pieces together and you get this deeply narcissistic person, but you also have a crowd that celebrates the reality show drama. I mean, I remember, this is dating myself, but back in the 90s when they were doing like all the shows where the, all the kids would come together and live together in a house for weeks and weeks and weeks. Real world. <laughs> the real world, Russell. <laughs> this That's is the I'm true sorry. story. Seven strangers picked to live it out. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> but I mean, why did I watch the real world? 
I watched it for that drama. They chose characters who were mentally unstable. Oh, yeah. Characters who were way over the top. Their view of themselves was so overinflated. It was ridiculous. But we watched it and we loved it. And when they were done with the show, they were superstars. I mean, this is the Donald Trump reality. So what? It's a porn star. That makes it more dramatic. And it brings an emotional rise. Even those who don't want to watch, they cover their eyes, but they part their fingers so that they can see. I mean, this is this is the function of society today. We we glamorize these ridiculous dramas. To find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. That's right. Real, in quotes. Real, in quotes, <laughs> which would now be unwatchable. I'll tell you what, though, with all of the cultural sort of downgrade that we've seen this week, I think we have an admirable figure here in one way that I wish to say, I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'm here cheering for one member of the Trump family, and that's Melania, who did not do the good wife stand next to, uh, you know, you think of Hillary Clinton on 60 Minutes in 92 saying, I'm not going to be Tammy Wynette standing by my man, which required an apology later to Tammy Wynette from Mrs. Clinton. But Melania Trump so far is not being Tammy Wynette or the good wife trope that we have. And I say, good for her. Absolutely. And just how difficult that is to be in the spotlight. Every move that you make is scrutinized. You move forward and doing what you think is best for you and the public is upset and you stay and you do what you think is best for the marriage. But I think her statement is, I'm not going to be a part of his show. Yeah, This is a show. And to opt out is honorable in this case. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they would talk about uh, several people on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 so that that was a major issue in focus groups with women who would say, well, I just uh, resent the fact that she stayed with them. It must just be an arrangement. And that the moment that was really telling was that eventually everybody in the room would say, I lived through that too. And I stayed. Mm -hmm. And so it was more, it was deeper than just, than just mm -hmm. politics. Matt, do you think that this sort of host shame post-sex scandal world, is this just the new American life we're in? Or is this something cyclical? Both. So here's what I think would happen. I think that it's entirely possible that three years from now, a normal politician would be taken down by a sex scandal because the rules don't apply to Donald Trump and there is a double right. standard. But having said that, I think that we are kind of in a race to the bottom. The trajectory is downward, but you know it's it's going to dip, so have some you know rises and falls along the way. But I do think that you can kind of draw a straight line from Bill Clinton to where we are. And like I said, I do think it's possible that there will be a brief rebound and that some other politician could actually be burned by a sex scandal. But generally speaking, I think that we are headed in a direction where this is becoming the norm. This is acceptable behavior. I think that Donald Trump is normalizing that behavior. And I think that it will not turn around easily. It's going to take something very big to turn mm. this country around. I think it's something like a, a real disaster that would cause people to have maybe like a revival like a um, global pandemic. You would think that that would have changed things. It actually made things worse, right? So that's what scares me is yeah. we have now been through, you know, 9-11 and the uh, 08 economic crisis and then a, a global pandemic. And none of those things really in the long run 
brought Americans back together and sort of restored our values. In fact, I think they made them worse. So like what would have to happen for us to uh, to have a, I'll say it, a come to Jesus moment. Alien invasion. <laughs> <laughs> the watchman had it right. Well, and one of the things too is just abstract the culture for a minute and look at the church. There was an entire category in the White House for the October 8th evangelicals. And those were the evangelical Christians who were willing to go on television after Access Hollywood and say, there's nothing to see here. This is fine. I wasn't one of those evangelicals. But there were a lot of them. And at the time, it was even kind of remarkable that you had people who did say a lot about Bill Clinton's character and had been talking about morality and cultural decadence and whatever, who were able to defend that. It's not even notable now. There are prayer calls going on uh, Tuesday night with leaders. There's not even a question of, oh, isn't this hypocrisy? Because the outside world has just come to say, oh, well, that's all. That's what it always was about, was just power. And it does kind of beg the question, what was preceding the instant appeal of Donald Trump in some sectors of Christianity. I mean, you think biblically, there were several moments that preceded the people of Israel accepting Saul. They were just, we want a king. So there was an insistence, we want this. There was a constant exposure to the enemy. We see what they have and we want it for ourselves. There was a dissatisfaction with the ways that Moses led them in, the ways that others led them. We feel distant from God. We don't like Samuel. You know, it's not good enough for us. So there was like a groundswell. And it does, these moments, even your article, I love that statement where you said, Donald Trump has burned out our outrage receptors. But that didn't happen overnight. I remember in our basement, the TV burned out because of a, a storm. It was like electricity hit the house, done. TV's burned out. But this isn't, this doesn't feel like an instant burn. This feels like it was a gradual burn. And here comes a very dry piece of grass that just kind of ignites it all. There was something happening in the ground that just made it just right for a Donald Trump to show up and pay a porn star and no one cares. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long time coming, but it was something I think you have to look back and piece together. I think there were a lot of us who at the time were thinking, eh, something's going on. But I don't think any of us really saw exactly where, mm -hmm. where this was going. We've mentioned Bill Clinton. We've mentioned the rise of reality TV. I would say... You've mentioned porn becoming much more mainstream and accessible, you know, via the internet. Uh, Twitter obviously is is a factor, and there's just so many things. And yet, Trump burst onto the scene, and it seemed to surprise a lot of us. But now you got to realize Trump has been around now for like eight years. There is an entire generation of young people, of young Republicans, who he is kind of all they know of the yeah. Republican. He has been the Republican Party for as long as they know. And that has an effect. And, you know, the old saw about how do you boil a frog? You know, if you if you throw him yeah. in boiling water, he jumps out. Yeah. But if you slowly turn up the heat, and I think that Trump, the last eight years, we have become so used to things that in any other time of my lifetime would have been outrageous. You would have had people would not have stood for it. They would not have stood for it. And yet now it's like, well, that's just Trump being Trump. Mm. Yeah. And with porn, uh, what I'm saying is not just that we've become desensitized to immorality. I mean, that porn does something really specific, especially to young men, of isolating them, cutting them off from real human relationships, and brings with it a particular attitude toward women. 
that is right. is is what we can see. And I mean, we're, we're talking about this uh, sex scandal right now. Almost nobody is mentioning that the former president will be in a civil case in just a matter of weeks over allegations of rape. Nobody even mentions it. Mm-mm. It's not even right. it's not even there because there's something that has really gone wrong with the way that we view the dignity of women. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. We are back here at The Bulletin with Nicole Martin and Matt Lewis from The Daily Beast. And one of the developments in the news that has happened uh, this week were a couple of really big elections that were kind of overshadowed in many cases by the arrest and arraignment news. One of those being in Chicago, in which Brandon Johnson, the very progressive defund the police in the past uh, candidate uh, of the teachers unions, beat Paul Vallis, the uh, police union supporter, the, the reformer there. And also in Wisconsin, a race that many people around the country didn't even know was happening, but an an elected race for Supreme Court in which the liberal candidate, Janet Protaswitz, beat Daniel Kelly in that race, giving a progressive majority to the Supreme Court. There are all kinds of issues here. If you want to even just see a little bit of it, watch Dan Kelly's concession speech in which he said, I would like to concede, but I can't because this is an unworthy opponent was a really bitter kind of a, Mm -hmm. hey, guy, this isn't the way you do it sort Mm -hmm. of a, a moment. And there were multiple issues there. I mean, some of them having to do with democracy, the question of whether or not the Wisconsin Supreme Court might override an election. So that was a big part of it. But there also was the question of abortion. And there were many people who were mobilized, according to all of the exit polling that we have, about abortion, particularly supporting a pro-choice vision of abortion, a lot of concern about an old 1939, I think it was, Wisconsin law that might be put into effect outlawing abortion. That's consistent with what we're seeing almost all around the country, where there's a backlash to post-Dobbs pro-life legislation. And so I'm just wondering, when you look at this, what's happening? Cards on the table, I'm pro-life, but I'm going to put on my political commentator hat and Mm -hmm. take off my pro-life hat. And so if we look at it from a a political standpoint, it seems like we are seeing a trend and that what happened in Wisconsin is confirming what we saw in the 2022 midterms. And as as Nate Cohn at the New York Times said, I'm paraphrasing him, but, but he said, when abortion and democracy are on the ballot, right now, progressives are winning. 
those elections. And in Wisconsin, what happened is that the progressive, I think, broke protocol. You know, you think you're going to be a Supreme Court mm-hmm. justice, you should be talking about principles like the rule of law, not mm-hmm. advocating policy positions. But the progressive really campaigned mm-hmm. on being pro-choice. And it worked. And I do think there's a lesson here. And I think that uh, it is possible. And again, I'm personally very pro-life, but from a political analysis standpoint, we are seeing, I mean, look in Florida where Ron DeSantis, right now, Florida has a 15-week ban on abortion. That's the standard that Lindsey Graham wanted nationwide. That is the Mississippi law that the Dobbs decision that that ultimately overturned Roe versus Wade. I think a lot of conservatives would say that 15 weeks is a very defensible position and, and one that not only is an improvement on what we've had mostly since 1973 in a lot of places, but also something that's politically defensible. And right here you have Ron DeSantis potentially signing a ban of six weeks, which I do think in a general election, if he were to win the Republican primary and go up against Joe Biden, that may not help him in the suburbs winning suburban women. And so I do think that there is a danger here of a backlash and Republicans, look, you you never want to make too much out of these kind of elections. I mean, Chicago specifically, like Chicago is a liberal city, should we make too much out of the progressive winning that? Probably not. In Wisconsin, you know, it's who knows. But while I don't think we should make too much out of this, I think Republicans would be stupid not to be paying attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's Kansas ballot initiative, Kentucky ballot initiative. I mean, you, you you go through in almost every case where people are voting secret ballot sort of vote on this. It is not going in the pro-life direction, despite the fact that Roe is gone. All of these conversations are very layered and very nuanced. But when you unpack what's beneath it, I don't think we can ignore this yearning for a way to make a statement but that also values what I would say is the immeasurable love of God. So I'm also pro-life. But I also understand if you, as Matt, as you said, kind of take off one hat, if you put on a pastoral hat, I think every pastor, at least those that I've spoken to, would say, we are pro-life because God is pro-life and We, as a church, have a responsibility to create a community where there is grace when people have to make decisions or have made decisions in the past. We have a responsibility to create the resources that will help to teach young men how to coach themselves and their girlfriends through those conversations. We need to be able to provide for children who are born out of wedlock or in difficult circumstances. And I think what these elections showed us is a generation that's crying out for that nuance. They want to know not just like what's your stance on this, but they want to know what's the more. And unfortunately, the pro-life conversation has been so black and white that the pro-choice conversation offers the nuance. The pro-choice says, well, this could be your situation or this could be your situation or this could be happening and look at all the things. So, I mean, the question is, how do you stand on what you know and believe, but also offer to a generation who is, you know, potential voters and either current or potential, offer to that generation a view of God that gives them an alternative. And I don't don't mean an alternative as in a choice, because again, this is very, very nuanced. But if you take Chicago, for example, the mayor did backtrack his defund the police thing. Why? Because he's in Chicago. Like, how can you defund the police in Chicago when you have such high rates of crime? So what did he do? He says, well, actually, 
we need public schools and we need, you know, other community services. And I'm not making a political statement. What I'm saying is I think he won because he offered a level of nuance that perhaps the next generation is longing for. One thing I think is also going to our other conversation about Donald Trump, think of what the Republican Party's brand is at this moment, right? On one hand, you have a party that pays off porn stars, that Herschel Walker has allegedly children out of wedlock, that is sort of a vulgarian party going out to dinner with white supremacists or anti-Semite. You, you can go through the, like, it's, it's a very sort of ultra-masculine, vulgar party that also wants to tell women what to do. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, look, again, I I believe that the pro-life position is, is one of compassion and a culture of life. Mm-hmm. But you would understand someone who is not deeply wedded in the pro-life community or in, in sort of understanding the, the political worldview. Yeah. They look at Donald Trump as now being the avatar of the party of mm-hmm. life. And it would be very, I think, confusing for someone and really, you, you you could forgive someone, a young person or an alien who just showed up here, you would forgive them from sort of lumping together the treatment of Stormy Daniels with the treatment of women in general mm-hmm. as it pertains to abortion. So I think part of it is that Donald Trump has really messed up the uh, the yes. brand, as it were, yes. in terms of us being the the party of life and of compassion and dignity and human dignity and human mm-hmm. dignity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's been working in the pro-life movement for 30 years, I think one of the things that most people don't see is there's a different pro-life movement than the one that people see on television. And these are yes. the people who are actually on the ground, helping women in crisis, helping mm-hmm. single mothers, finding mm-hmm. alternatives to abortion. They don't do that with press releases. Mm-hmm. And so it's very different from sort of the political action committee kind of image that is seen. And what those people understand and know is that a pro-life vision is built upon a particular view of human vulnerability uh, and of human dignity. And you cannot mix that in with Nietzschean will to power and with dominance and with hyper-masculinity That's and right. with misogyny and with making fun of disabled people. Yes. I mean, that, that, that The whole argument of the pro-life movement is that people are not valued because they're useful. People mm-hmm. aren't valued because they're viable, whatever that means, that a vulnerable human being has a right to live and to be loved and to be cared yeah. for. You can't mix that with South Park conservatism and it lasts for very long. Definitely. I mean, I, I think that you know, as, as you've just alluded to, I think that Trump's worldview and ethos is consistent with a pro-choice position. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. it's incoherent that the party of life is the party of Trump. And I'm not saying that's the reason that this, I think there is a backlash, obviously, due to the overturning of Roe. But I, I think it's worth noting that you have now a political party that is kind of inconsistent and incoherent in terms of the life issue and its standard bearer. Yeah, and it kind of depends on what the backlash is. I would say that the pro-life issue is a human rights issue. It's not up for a majority vote. That's the entire argument. But what that requires is a communication to people, here's why you ought to care about this, and that requires credibility, consistency. It can't just be... Changing court decisions is necessary in order to move forward. But if that's all it is, 
and you don't have the changing of the way that people see this, then yeah. the backlash is about more than just we disagree on abortion. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. we don't believe you. And that's a bigger mm-hmm. problem. When you look at this next generation, I keep leaning on this because this conversation in Chicago and Wisconsin also includes a resurgence of voters who are younger, they are women, they are worried. And even if theologically they stand on a pro-life position, when they look at the slate, when they look at the conversation, when they see how women are talked about, when they see this lack of human dignity, they say, if that's what this is, then I'm going the other way. And so now you're seeing a democratic swing of Christians, not because they believe in the liberal agenda, but because they don't believe in that. All right. Thank you, Matt Lewis, Daily Beast. Tell people how they can find you. So let me do a shameless plug here. Okay. This shamelessness is the theme today. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we were talking about Donald Trump. So (laughs) buy my steak, buy my steak, stay at my hotel. Um, You can pre-order my book, Filthy Rich Politicians Now. It's coming out in July. And follow me on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis. All right. Thanks, Matt Lewis. Thanks, Thanks, Nicole. Happy Easter to you all. Happy Easter. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Welcome back. As you're listening to this, it is Good Friday. Well, I say that. I don't know when you're listening to this. It might be Christmas. But we're releasing this on Good Friday and Easter weekend. And I wanted to talk to my friend David Platt, who is the pastor of McLean Bible Church in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. Of course, the author of Radical and the author of a forthcoming book as well called Don't Hold Back, Leaving Behind the American Gospel to Follow Jesus Fully. David, thanks for being here. It's always good to be together with you, Russell. I am wondering as we're headed into Easter, when somebody asks you, how do you know this is true, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and was physically, bodily raised from the dead? I mean, that's a really audacious claim that I think we, I think we sometimes miss at Easter. What do you say to someone like that who wonders? I think the first thing I say, and I have this conversation often, especially around this week, is that's a great question. And I would argue the question upon which everything in the world hinges as we know it. I always am quick to say to even my non-Christian friends, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then in a 1 Corinthians 15 way, they obviously don't know 1 Corinthians 15, but my faith is futile and worthless. Everything I've banked my life on hinges on the resurrection of Jesus being true. And then based on that, so I'm so glad you're asking that question. I would encourage you to think, one, as I'm talking to someone, there's a burden of proof in a sense on Christians to say why they believe Jesus rose from the dead. There's also a burden of proof on a non-Christian to explain what happened 2,000 years ago that led to massive upheaval 
and all of these people, hundreds of them, proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead when it cost them their lives. And so when I look at that event and I look at all the historical evidence that Jesus existed, he lived, he died on a cross, which obviously, so if I'm speaking to my Muslim friends, they would not even believe that Jesus died on a cross, that somebody looked like Jesus or he didn't die completely, but that he definitely died and rose from the grave, at which people say either somebody stole the body or they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, If they just go next door, they could find the body there. But when you look at the historical evidence that there was a real Jesus who died 2,000 years ago, that three days later was walking around, and an entire new religion, in a sense, obviously built on what had come before in the Old Testament of the Bible, sprung up and people were given their lives to proclaim him as Lord. I look at that historical evidence behind all of that, and I say, there's no question in my mind that Jesus rose from the dead. And you may not believe that right now, but I would encourage you to look at the historical evidence behind why that is and why all of these people, billions of people in the world believe that because of the truthfulness of that claim. And if you disagree with that, then I would say you need to really ask the question then, why has all of this come about as a result over the last 2,000 years? You and I were in your living room not long ago talking about our kids. And Mm -hmm. I remember saying to you, you know, when everybody would say at the very beginning, it goes by so fast, they grow up so fast, you just think, yeah, 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 of course, that's what you say. And then you realize, oh, wait, everybody says that because it's true. It it Mm -hmm. really does seem like you turn around and they're 18 years old, which, of course, is the case for our lives. It goes by really, really fast quickly. And I think one of the things that we have happening really in all of our lives is a denial of that. It's hard for us to imagine I'm going to die. Mm. And when you think about Good Friday, how should the cross and the resurrection, or at least how does it, how does it for you change the way that you see life and should change the way that we see the shortness of life? The first thing that comes to my mind, Russell, is just, I am invigorated with hope when I see Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that sin, death, suffering is not the end of the story in this world. That yes, our lives are short and filled with all kinds of challenges. I think we were probably, as we were talking about family in that conversation in my living room, talking about challenges that we face in this world and difficulties that we, our children face, but to know that this is not the end, that sin, sickness, disease, death is not the end of the story, that life is the end of the story. And therefore, how can I spend my life here in the short bit of time that I have on this earth in a way that's going to count for what matters beyond this life? That kind of hope drives me to live today for what's going to matter, not just today or tomorrow, but what's going to matter way beyond when I'm gone from this world. And for that matter, when there's a new heaven and a new earth way beyond this world. You know, every Easter, I think about a mutual friend of ours. We were sitting on the front pew at a church we both served. I was going to preach one service. He was going to preach the other. 
And I looked over and there were tears coming down his face. And I leaned over and says, everything okay? And he said, just look around because the place was packed. There were a lot of people there didn't ordinarily come to church. And he said, there are so many really hurting people who are here today just seeking a word. And that's a heavy mm. responsibility. I think about that every single Easter. You're going to be preaching Sunday. And mm. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people in the Washington, D.C. area who don't ordinarily go to church every week, but who are going to go uh, that day. So you have that one moment with some of them. What's the most important thing you want to get across? The most important thing I want to get across is that the God of the universe who created all of this loves them. And even though they have turned aside from him, like we all have, and deserve separation from him and eternal judgment for sin before a holy God, that this holy God has done the unthinkable. He has come to us. He's lived a life we couldn't live, a life of no sin. He's died the death we deserve to die on a cross, and he has conquered the enemy we could not conquer, death itself. And in him, through faith in Jesus, not through a list of things to do, but through trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they can be forgiven of all their sin and restored to relationship with God for all of eternity to eternal life, joy, peace. The text I'm preaching this Sunday, John 20, three times Jesus says, it's his first words out of his mouth when he comes to his disciples after rising from the dead in John's account, peace, peace, mm -hmm. peace. And especially in a world where there's so much depression, anxiety, hurt, I, I want them to know that peace that transcends this world is possible with God in Jesus that will never, ever fade. Thank you, my friend, David Platt. And you've been listening to The Bulletin. Every week we talk about the issues, events, and people in the news, but there is no more important news than this. Christ is risen, just as he said. We'll be back next week. All right. Thank you, Russell. And thanks each of you for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens, hosted by Mike Cosper and Russell Moore. Our music is by Dan Phelps. Our graphic design is by Brian Todd. Additional design by Dady Creative. Social media by Kate Lucky. Associate producer, Azure Phelps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.